You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Okay, so we're going to talk about pterosaurs. Uh, our guest today is going to be Dr. David Martell. Um, he did an episode of Monster Quest talking about an animal called the Ropen, which is ostensibly a glow-in-the-dark pterosaur. That sounds very dismissive, Blake. You know what? It, it, I, I do feel a little bit dismissive of this because it seems to be out of sync with what science tells us about these animals. But I'm sure Dr. Martill will tell us more about that. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Welcome to Monster Talk, the skeptical podcast about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford, Managing Editor of Skeptical Inquirer, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, Linguist, Skeptical Investigator, Blogger, and now Skeptic, we examine stories about monsters and try to find out what science can tell us about the plausibility of such tales. Today's pre-show chat is a little shorter than usual. Dr. Martell's interview covers a lot of material, and I wanted to leave in as much as possible. On the episode of Monster Quest, dealing with the legendary Ropen, I saw yet another case where creationists were fervently searching for a cryptid in the belief that finding it would help falsify the theory of evolution. We'll talk with Dr. Martell about that, but this strange and I believe misguided quest by creationists to find these mystery animals keeps coming up again and again. Hopefully today's show will give you a much more detailed understanding of pterosaurs and the legendary Ropen. This animal, this roping animal, seems a lot like the American Thunderbird sightings in that um, there's a few little videos, but in general, uh, there's not a lot to back it up except stories. Some of the problems we have with this uh, as skeptics, I think, are that anecdotes are not really evidence, no matter how many of them there are. Yeah, as you said, there are large animal bird sightings um, all, all over the place. We have the Thunderbirds, you've got the rope, and you've got the, the rock, the ROC uh, in some traditions, and, you know, the Native Americans there. They're really, you know, there's no shortage of, of people where they're seeing uh, either mythical or quasi-mythical things in the sky. In this particular case, I think with the rope, and it's, it's, it's obviously not a bird because it has leathery wings uh, and a tail and things like that. Uh, it's sort of a, a featherless tail. So it's, it's, little, it's a little more interesting than just sort of someone seeing a giant buzzard in, in Texas or something. But, um, but as you pointed out, the, the bioluminescence uh, is just um, – it's, it's hard to reconcile with anything. Yeah, it's a bit odd. But, you know, you reminded me of something there that um – it's something we probably need to look into in a future episode. I don't think we can properly address it today. But that is the relationship between native folklore and cryptozoology. Um, it seems to me that stories that might be legendary or mythic are being repurposed as evidence for mm. cryptids. For example, stories about giant apes in North America, stories about the Thunderbird, and here this story about the Ropen, this seems to be a, a folkloric animal 
uh, in New Guinea, but uh, it's being treated by cryptozoology aficionados as a real animal. And they're using these, oh, the same thing with lake monsters as well. So, in fact, I'm not certain I can think of, well, yeah, I don't think I can think of of any of them that don't have some kind, except for maybe the chupacabra, <laughs> uh, right. the, the kind of, uh, you know, we haven't had a folklore of that before 1995 that I'm aware of. So, yeah, I would think they'd likely be the the source for all of the cryptozoological sightings. That's how they would begin. Yeah, you're right. They they could become primed by the oh, did you hear about the wild man of the woods? Oh, he's out there, and then you know they go find one. So, in the case of the Yowie, do you know if there is there a pre-existing Aborigine uh, tradition? Uh, I don't know of one uh, in particular. I mean, there are a lot of Aboriginal Dreamtime stories and many, many creatures, uh, mythological creatures. So I would say likely there would be uh, some sort of similar creature uh, in folklore and uh, oral history. Like like uh, with drop bears? Uh. <laughs> Vicious. Uh, <laughs> Bears are, uh, yeah, they're koalas. <laughs> look like koalas. What? Uh, they look like koalas, but with teeth. Vampire teeth. They're so cute. Yeah, until they land on you and uh, sever your arteries. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're about nine feet tall as well. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So I don't know how you'd miss them in the trees. Like tree alligators, it's a... It's oh, that is also a big problem, yeah. <laughs> tree alligators. Yeah, we have those here. Yeah. Well, in Florida. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, myth and or joke. <laughs> Monster dog. Would you like to introduce yourself and talk about uh, your career and where you're at? Yeah, sure. I'll tell you now. I'm My name's Dave Martell. I'm uh, a reader in paleobiology at the University of Portsmouth on the south coast of England. I work in a geology department with uh, a whole bunch of people that uh, mess around with volcanoes and earthquakes. And also I've got a team of, of paleobiologists who work on dinosaurs, pterosaurs, and um, also on stratigraphy of uh, oil-bearing basins in North Africa. So I've got, I got a, a whole bunch of colleagues with lots and lots of different skills. And one of the, the specializations that we have here at Portsmouth is on pterosaurs. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work, particularly on the gigantic pterosaurs that were uh, flying around during the Cretaceous period between around about 120 and 65 million years ago. Neat. Um, yeah, one of my later questions I want to talk about is the size of those, so don't let me forget that. Okay, no, well, we can, we can talk about that. Uh, one or two other things. Um, we've also been working on dinosaurs down here uh, and also on plesiosaurs. And um, that's bringing us into contact with a lot of the big marine reptiles and talks of things like Loch Ness monsters and what they might be if they exist at all. Um, we also have a big uh, fieldwork program, and every year we go out to places like Brazil, uh, to Africa, uh, searching for fossil remains. And uh, we've got a, a very active lab here and uh, have had a lot of experience describing new new species of dinosaurs. Cool. Well, it's, wow. that's, a, that's a good lead into that question. Pterosaurs are not dinosaurs, but uh, I, I assume they share some common ancestry? Yeah, they do, in fact. They, uh, although they're not dinosaurs, um, most recent analysis seems to show that they're, if you like, the, the sister group to dinosaurs. There's a, a kind of a group that sits in there with all the other archosaurs, like the crocodiles and, and things like that. Uh, there's called the Ornithodira. And um, this is dinosaurs and pterosaurs together. So there, there, there seems to be this close relationship. But the problem is that if you were trying to find the, the ancestor of, 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 of dinosaurs and pterosaurs, the common ancestor, the fossil just isn't there. Uh, it's some hiding somewhere in the Triassic, probably in the middle Triassic, and nobody has found it yet. So although we think that there's a relationship between pterosaurs and dinosaurs, it's not absolutely proven. Um, there's still a little bit to play for, but most of the evidence seems to indicate that, that they are close. And, and why are they not dinosaurs? Ah, right. Well, there's a whole lo lots of reasons, but um, it's it's really to do with some of the shared characters that dinosaurs have. There's, there's several things that make dinosaurs dinosaurs and exclude them from being pterosaurs. One of the criteria is if you look at the skeleton, and if, particularly if you look at the backbone in the region of the hips, in dinosaurs, all dinosaurs, there's some of those vertebrae in the sacral region are fused together. But this only happens later on in pterosaur evolution. 
And so we think that the, the fused vertebrae in the, in the sacrum of pterosaurs is actually a convergence with dinosaurs and not a shared character. Um, the early pterosaurs don't seem to have that. But like I say, there's a lot to play for, and really we, we still need those sort of intermediary fossils that we would expect to find somewhere at the, in the middle of the Triassic period, and we just haven't found those fossils yet, the ones that are going to give us the real clues to what the relationship is between dinosaurs and pterosaurs. And, uh, there seems to be a lot of diversity in the morphology of the pterosaurs, including vast uh, size differences, amazing crests, uh, varying wing configurations. Can you talk about some of the common and uncommon features of these animals that makes them so distinctive? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Good, good, good question there. Um, Pterosaurs really are very, very distinctive animals anyway. I mean, they're completely unlike birds, they're unlike bats, and unlike any groups of dinosaurs, of course, that don't fly. Now, fairly, up until fairly recently, pterosaurs were thought of to be rather conservative. We always recognized from a very early stage that there were broadly two groups of pterosaurs. One group characterized by having very long tails, sometimes with a, a sort of a little uh, fan or um, a little blade-like structure, a diamond-shaped blade-like structure at the end of the tail, and having a skull which has got some characteristics that it shares in common with a, some basic groups of reptiles which we call diapsids. Now, these pterosaurs have been known for 200, 200 years or more. Um, very distinctive, these, these long tails. But the other group of pterosaurs, the so-called pterodactyloids, they have a short tail, and there are some modifications of their skull that make them very, very different from these long-tailed forms. But until fairly recently, both groups, were considered to be fairly conservative. And although there were some forms with long head crests, most famous, of course, being Pteranodon from the chalks of Kansas, um, and some forms were known to, be, uh, to, to lack teeth in the jaws. In the last 20 or 30 years, there have been more discoveries of pterosaurs, or genera of pterosaurs, than there were in the 200 years before then. And what we've realized now is that this group of short-tailed pterosaurs, the so-called pterodactyloids, there's much more diversity than we hitherto believed. And this diversity is reflected mostly in the elaborate nature of head crests. And we presume that this is related to uh, sexual attraction, just as you get these ornate head crests and these beautiful tails of some species of birds, we believe that the head crests of pterosaurs, the great diversity that we see in form of pterosaur head crests, is related to uh, sexual attraction. Yeah, I'm going to use that as a point to go ahead and ask that question. I sent you an email about the um, the recent finding of downy fibers on some of the more detailed fossils. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, the the the, the <laughs> I'm having some trouble saying this. The article implied that we would have to go back and revisit all of our imagery of pterosaurs, but when I went back and looked at some of the previous findings, I, I found that there were already many uh, depictions of pterosaurs as being somewhat. Yeah, yeah. That article made me laugh. I mean, uh, it it was was reported in a, a top journal. Now, now, don't let me sort of knock it too much, but <laughs> it didn't tell us anything that we didn't already know. The Yixiang deposits of, of China are fantastic. I mean, they are yielding new pterosaurs with lots and lots of new information. And the preservation, the quality of preservation is absolutely superb. There's no doubt about it. But we already knew that pterosaurs were furry. And although the specimens are spectacular, they're actually not telling us really anything that we didn't already know. And in fact, um, pterosaurs with fur have been known uh, from German deposits for getting on for 200 years. Uh, some of the earliest specimens described by people like Meyer, and particularly a guy called Goldfuss, um, had described feather-like structures. I'm not calling them feathers. I'm, I mustn't, I'm definitely not calling them feathers. But feather-like structures and fur structures on the body and on the neck of pterosaurs. Um, these were specimens discovered in the 1800s from the Jurassic Solnhofen limestone. And there have been subsequent discoveries. Um, these specimens have never been quite as, uh, as extensively preserved as the specimens from Yixiang. The Yixiang specimens really are spectacular. But in fact, there's nothing new in that paper. Um, so there's a little bit of hype going on there, I believe. Do you, do you think um, the fur 
Um, I, I, don't, I don't even know if that's the right word for it, fuzz. Um, is yeah, fuzz is, fuzz is a good word because it, it's not hair in the sense of mammals. It's not feathers in the sense of birds. It's something that pterosaurs had and, and no other no other reptiles had. So yeah, let's 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 call it fuzz. Let's, let's call it fuzz. The, the, do you think the fuzz is? Uh, well, does it tell us anything about whether they were endothermic, exothermic, or what do we think? Yeah. I think I think that it probably tells us that they were uh, they were in terms and that they had when they had small bodies that they had a, pr- a problem about uh, uh, losing losing heat. Um, on the other hand, pterosaurs have got these big wing membranes which had a blood supply, and so uh, they also lost a lot of heat from there. So my. I think the consensus is that when they were small-bodied, they really did have to conserve any heat that they generated, and this this fur acted as an insulation layer. Um, but then there's, there's the likelihood that they're going to lose an awful lot of heat through those wings. So it's it's not a cut and dry as to quite what the function of the fur was. Well, speaking of that, um, uh, some modern writers try to link modern-day giant bird or monster sightings to pterosaurs, and I'm wondering if, you know, on the off chance that there was some extant population of them, uh, <laughs> would, other than the fact that they died out 65 million years ago, that minor point aside, what would what would be the climate? What would, where, where, did where, they live? where would we go? Where would we go to find them? Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, apart from you say it's a minor point, I think it's actually a fairly major stumbling block over trying to trying to discover extant. Um, uh, uh, pterosaurs, uh, but let's 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 assume that just a few did get through, and that they made it uh, all the way uh, through the the um, Cenozoic right right up to to the present day. Where would we go to look for them? Well, I think we'd have to go for somewhere that had been largely unexplored where they could exist um, without mankind having come across them. Because as violent animals, when they're disturbed. Anything that is volant has an ability to escape using flight. It takes to the air, and in the air, you are visible. And mm-hmm. that is the same. When a bird get, takes, takes fright, a bird goes up into the air, and you see it. You see it flying away. And if pterosaurs were still around, hey, uh, if you disturbed them, they would take flight, and you would see them flying away. So if they were going to be around, they're going to be somewhere where nobody's ever been, nobody's taken a camera, nobody's ever managed to capture an image. Um, and there aren't terribly many places left on the planet where, where that's the case. So you'd have to be going to the middle of the jungles of Brazil, the middle of the jungle of the Congo, or dare I say, maybe even some remote place like the mountainous regions of Papua New Guinea. Um, but hey, even these unexplored regions uh, have still had an awful lot of people going there. And when scientists do go to these areas and they come back with newly discovered animals, these new animals always fit into the, the broad groups of animals that we already know about. So although people are going off to Borneo and Papua New Guinea and discovering new species, what they're discovering are new species of animals that we already know about, like new species of deer, new species of lizards, new species of turtles. What they're not finding are new species of dinosaurs, new species of pterosaurs. That's just not on the cards. Right. Right, and or you can go back to you know Conan Doyle's Lost World in uh, in uh, in South America. So. Yeah, let's all go back there. There's a wonderful place. I mean, there really is a lost world in South America. There's a place called the Chapada do Araripe in the northeast of Brazil. And it's one of these plateaus. It's made of sandstone at the top. It's got these beautiful, big, steep, precipitous pink cliffs. It's got a flat top. It's got jungle on the top. And it's got these flanks that you go up to the side. And you know you find pterosaurs there and you find dinosaurs. But in fact, you find them in the Cretaceous strata at the bottom as fossils. And it looks like an Arthur Conan Doyle-type lost world, but all of the dinosaurs there are all fossil remains, and there's none of them alive. This is sad, really. <laughs> Did you see a house with a bunch of balloons on top? <laughs> <laughs> several, several of them. So I think we were wanting to learn some of the characteristics of pterosaurs. Uh, so could you give us a bit of information about these characteristics, like where did they nest and how did they move on the ground, what did they eat... Yeah, and actually, actually, it's great. You're asking some of the questions that we're still asking and are struggling to find the answers for. Did you know that there's only three pterosaur eggs ever been found? Only three. And yet we're finding pterosaur fossils all over the world. Um, we haven't found a pterosaur nest yet. We've found dinosaur nests. In fact, we've found thousands of dinosaur nests and often with lots and lots of eggs in and even with babies inside. But so far, just three 
eggs from pterosaurs, two from China and one from Argentina. Um, these are accidental discoveries where uh, an egg somehow has um, managed to drift out into a lake. And we know that they're pterosaur eggs because they actually have baby pterosaurs inside. They've got these embryos. And the embryos are, in fact, fully ossified. They've got complete skeletons with all of the proportions of the uh, flying adults. So uh, Dave Unwin, who's an expert on pterosaurs, has speculated that pterosaurs could fly very, very soon after hatching. And if that's the case, it means they have a very, very different growth strategy to birds. Birds put on all of their growth in the nest. They do not take to the air until they're virtually fully grown, certainly around about 80% of, of of total size is achieved before they take to the air. And although some bird species are precocial um, and the chicks will run around and go hunting for their own food after, after uh, just a few hours of, of hatching or even minutes after hatching from the eggs, it looks as though pterosaurs may have been extremely precocial and were often independent uh, almost as soon as they'd hatched. Now, the proof isn't there yet. This is just based on... Three little bits of evidence, three isolated pterosaur eggs, and, of course, the ecology of other pterosaurs may, may be different from that. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll tell you something else that, uh, that's also frustrating us, and that is that we've got hardly any data on what pterosaurs could eat. And mostly our knowledge of what pterosaurs could eat is actually based on looking at the morphology of the jaws uh, morphology of the teeth when they have them and trying to extrapolate uh, sort of linking form and function if you like to see if we can guess what they could eat from the morphology of the jaws and nearly always it comes down to some sort of piscivory eating fish and there probably are much more diverse ecologies than that. There are a few wide mouth forms which have filaments uh, adjacent to their jaws which might suggest that they were insect eaters, for example. But there are very, very few specimens, despite all of the specimens from China and from the Solnhofen in, in, in Germany, uh, that are complete specimens. There's hardly any which have got stomach contents. There's one or two with a few little bits of fish remains, but the data set is very small. So, to be honest, we don't know much about the biology and the ecology of pterosaurs. Did they, um, did they use gastroliths? That's a very good question. And if you'd have asked that about a year or so ago, you would have said no, nobody's ever found. But just recently, somebody has found some gastroliths, some very small uh, gravelly material in, in the stomach of, of a pterosaur, suggesting, uh, in fact, that they were using it to um, possibly grind down uh, hard chitinous skeletons of small shrimps and uh, animals like that. So yes, there now uh, is at least one pterosaur known that has had gastroliths in the stomach. But hey, you don't want too many gastroliths if you're flying. Um, it's best to keep them to a minimum because of the weight. So, so they have uh, their beaks or their, their jaws, uh, they have some teeth, and do those teeth look like they are grinding teeth? Cutting teeth? Or they... No, the, 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 the teeth of the, the one with the gastroliths are actually extremely fine needle-like teeth um, from, from a filter-feeding pterosaur. Uh, one that's been predicted to filter out tiny little shrimps, brine shrimps and things like that. Um, the, 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 the tooth morphology of pterosaurs is actually quite variable. You see some of the longest and thinnest teeth. And I think um, the, 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 the pterosaurs that belong to a group called the Tinochasmatids, and particularly famous is one with an upturned beak called Pterodaustro, uh, probably has more teeth than any other than any other tetrapod animal. It really has got hundreds of things, but they're all as fine as a needle. Very, very fine uh, teeth indeed. But the, the diversity of pterosaur teeth is, is quite high. Uh, there are lots of pterosaurs with no teeth, but then there are those with teeth, and some of them have got uh, very variable teeth. Some of the early pterosaurs uh, have got heterodont dentitions, that is to say that the teeth at the front of the jaw are really markedly different from the teeth that are in, in the back of the jaw. When you get into the Cretaceous, they've often simplified their teeth into rather elongate fang-like structures that probably formed a sort of an open fishing net type device. Uh, but there are some with little short triangular teeth which may have worked a little bit like a cookie cutter um, and there are some which not particularly 
crushing teeth, but there, there's a very strange pterosaur from, from the Jurassic of Germany, which has got some rather stubby little teeth in the front of the jaw that just might have been able to crack open the shells of, of mollusks. For, uh, for those uh, listeners who, haven't, who have only have the vaguest idea of, of what a pterosaur looks like, um, what would you say that comes closest to uh, films that people might have seen, uh, Jurassic Park or Land of the Lost? or what, uh, where, where, where would we go to see a really good, accurate depiction of a pterosaur? Uh, I always like to think of those that Walking with Dinosaurs series that the BBC put out a few years ago. Um, they, they've, they've got they've got some nice pterosaurs depicted in there. In fact, they've, they've, several of the episodes show pterosaurs, but also the Jurassic Park. I forget which one it is now. Not the first Jurassic Park, but it's two the, or the three. three. There's, so, three. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful, wonderful big sort of uh, pterosaur in that one to, to have a look at. But if you want to see something that that, that is, is sort of reminiscent of pterosaurs. And I, I always think that when you when you see a frigate bird flying over, the the sort of crook of the wing that you see on frigate birds sort of has a has a pterosaur aspect about it. I mean, it's not a pterosaur; it's not even remotely related, but uh, uh, it, it always has that sort of primitive aspect that looks sort of pterosaurian. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. What do we think was driving the size increase for pterosaurs uh, at the uh, end of their existence? I don't know that anything was driving it, but um, so something was kind of letting it happen. And I think one of the most important things is that the skeleton is made of bone, and bone is a wonderfully versatile, incredibly uh, plastic material. Um, bone can be engineered to be extremely light and extremely strong at the same time. Um, it really, really was a wonderful evolutionary invention, uh, and it allowed animals to become incredibly large. Um, it equally could be allowed animals to become incredibly small, um, and it allowed animals to change their size and shape quite dramatically during their life, whilst at the same time always being functional. You never had to sort of take a day out and grow a bone. You always could carry on doing whatever you wanted to whilst your bone was changing its size and shape in response to, to your growth strategy. But one thing that's great fun about pterosaurs is that they really did achieve gigantic proportions. And we've known about this for quite a long time, even though... Uh, um, spectacularly, Quetzalcoatlus hit the news in the 1970s when its remains were found down in Texas, and there was some speculation that it might have achieved wingspans of 14, 15, or even larger uh, meters uh, in diameter. The um, consensus today is that Quetzalcoatlus was probably around about 9-meter wingspan, uh, and some related forms, I think called Hatsagopteryx, might have been just marginally larger. Nevertheless, wingspans of 9 and 10 meters makes them the largest ever flying animals, and bigger than any, any fossil bird, or any, indeed any extant bird that we know of. So they really were achieving gigantic proportions. But we've actually known about these fossils e even in the 1800s. Uh, There's a, a great British comparative anatomist, probably as good, if not better, than the French Baron von Cuvier, who was describing fragments of pterosaurs in the 1800s 
Um, and although they were very tantalizing, these fragments, uh, Richard Owen was able to calculate wingspans of certainly six, six meters, um, even before Tyrannid Tranodon had been discovered uh, in North America in the 1870s. There have been some fossil trackways found. They seem to give us a little bit of information about how these animals might have moved on the ground. I saw descriptions of that, but what, what is the current understanding of how their ground movement worked? Pterosaurs appear to have been quadrupedal. They, uh, when they were on the ground, they weren't walking bipedally. Um, pterosaurs have nearly always been depicted as, as quadrupedal animals. Um, that changed with the, the sort of the dinosaur renaissance when uh, people getting very excited about dinosaurs being endothermic or warm-blooded um, an idea brought about by bob backer in the in the 1970s there was also a sort of a little if you like a, a sort of pterosaur renaissance although mostly the pterosaur renaissance followed a little bit later than the dinosaur renaissance um, kevin padian over in california was postulating that pterosaurs were uh, bipedal animals um, but I'm afraid to say that the footprint evidence really doesn't bear this out. And one thing that's really nice about pterosaur footprints is that you can be very confident when you're dealing with pterosaur footprints. With dinosaur footprints, okay, you can uh, determine that they're dinosaur, but it's very difficult to determine which dinosaur made them. Uh, but with pterosaur footprints, there isn't any ambiguity. Pterosaur have got a hand which is very distinctive, completely different from the morphology of the foot. So with a pterosaur foot, you've got four long toes sticking forwards, and then you've got a fifth toe, a little toe which is sort of sticking out at the side. So that leaves a very characteristic footprint. If you were to just find the footprints, you might be a little concerned that you hadn't fully identified the animal. But what you find with pterosaur tracks is you find a very distinctive three-toed handprint, or so to say, three-fingered three handprint, um, and these uh, fingers are folded sideways. And this is a configuration that occurs when the main flight wing finger is folded back, and the other three fingers are kind of opened up and displayed on their sides. And so the handprint of a pterosaur is very, very different from the footprint of a pterosaur. But because the handprint and the footprint are both distinctive of pterosaurs, when you find a trackway, you find these handprints and footprints in unison. And that leaves you no doubt that these trackways are made by pterosaurs. And what we find is quadrupedal trackways. We find pterosaurs were walking on their legs or on their feet and on their hands. How widely distributed were the pterosaurs? Pterosaurs now have been found all over the world. Um, I think there is now even a record from Antarctica. But they're certainly, they're very, very abundant in the uh, Cretaceous of, uh, well, all over the world. They're found in Australia. They're found in South America, especially so, but also China, Europe, and, and North America. Um, the pterosaurs seem to get around the world pretty quickly. The first pterosaurs that we find are of late Triassic age, and initially it was felt that they uh, were probably restricted to Europe, but we now know that that's not the case, and we've got Triassic pterosaurs from Greenland and from, from uh, North America as well. So um, pterosaurs appear suddenly in the fossil record uh, and they suddenly get to be pretty global but on the other hand they're, they're flying animals so there aren't terribly many barriers in the way uh, and those oceans um, between Europe and North America weren't especially wide in the Triassic period it really didn't take uh, pterosaurs very long before they populated the globe when did pterosaurs disappear from the fossil record? The last pterosaur in the fossil record is right at the very end of the Cretaceous, uh, rocks of uh, about 65 million years ago uh, in North America. And if you go down to Big Bend, uh, in Big Bend you actually have the boundary uh, that marks the end of the Mesozoic era and the start of the Cenozoic. And there's a formation down there called the Havilena Formation. And the very last and the very biggest pterosaurs are found in that formation down in Big Bend, Texas. And that's, is that in concurrent with the uh, KT boundary? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. They're just, okay. just under the KT boundary there. And there's also some from uh, Europe as well, also in the very last, uh, last part of the Cretaceous. The last part of the Cretaceous is called the Maastrichtian. Uh, after Maastricht, the town in, in uh, the Netherlands. And um, if you, wherever you go, you seem to find this group of very large territories. They, they, they go under the name of Ashdarkids. Um, they're usually characterized by being 
very large and having very, very elongate neck vertebrae. And you can find their remains that turned up in Jordan at the end of Maastrichtian. They found up in Romania. And there's a few bits and pieces have turned up in Spain and elsewhere. Uh, but by far the best known specimens are, are from Texas. Um, at that time of the world, um, how widely separated were the continents? I mean, these, if these things were global. Well, by, by the time you get into the, the end of the Cretaceous, the Atlantic Ocean has become really quite wide, and it's a significant ocean. Um, but uh, during, during the uh, earlier part of the Mesozoic, the Atlantic uh, didn't exist as an ocean. It existed as some rather narrow seaways comparable to the, the Red Sea today. It was a, an ocean uh, undergoing birth, and so uh, there was no barrier to migration in the Jurassic, really. Uh, there were certainly land bridges that allowed dinosaurs to uh, get between the continents of North America, Asia, and uh, Europe, uh, right up into the, the early part of the Cretaceous. But by the time you get into the Cretaceous, uh, that mid-ocean ridge in the Atlantic is really spewing out magma, and the ocean is increasing at a, a heck of a rate. Um, and so by the time you get to the end of the Cretaceous, the, the Atlantic has become a significant ocean. And um, it, it has then, by then, it's become a, a barrier. And also sea levels were rising. And so even if your ocean wasn't that wide, um, sea levels in the middle part of the Cretaceous, part of the Cretaceous that we call the Cenomanian and the Turonian, estimated to be about 300 meters 300 meters higher than present-day sea levels. So if you're worried about <laughs> global warming and sea, sea level rise now, you've got nothing, nothing on the Cretaceous, I can tell you. <laughs> I guess that's comforting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you, 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 in North America, you had a massive seaway which split your continent in two. Um, you, you wouldn't have been able to communicate with, uh, with those in California um, during the Cretaceous. That was a, that was a massive seaway there, just simply because sea levels were high. Do you think, um, uh, if we talk about monsters for a minute, the uh, modern sightings of uh, what people think are pterosaurs, all the descriptions I've heard, except for this weird bioluminescent thing in New Guinea, um, have been describing the leathery kind of pterosaurs you would have seen in textbooks. But since discoveries have shown us that um, uh, pterosaurs were likely at least fuzzy and possibly colorful, that seems to discount the likelihood that whatever they're seeing would be a pterosaur, right? I mean, uh, I think that the people, who knows what they're seeing, but what they're not seeing are pterosaurs. It's interesting to see that uh, when people do these descriptions of the, uh, of the animals that they supposedly have seen, they end up drawing something which is from a textbook. Uh, I saw one beautiful example where this guy had drawn the pterosaur that he'd seen, and he said, oh, it looks exactly like the animal in the textbook. I've seen this animal. Uh, in fact, the animal in the textbook is completely erroneous <laughs> from the, uh, our ideas of what a might have looked like and so you think to yourself yeah right so you really were conditioned by what you saw in the book there uh, and you start to doubt the, the person's integrity so you, you tend to think well maybe you're not telling all the story there if you look at you know, reconstructions of dinosaurs uh, and pterosaurs over the years. What's happened is that our knowledge of these animals is getting better and better and better. And um, when when you see a reconstruction from the early periods, um, these animals don't look anything like what we now believe them to be like. And so when people are absolutely adamant that they've seen this animal uh, and it definitely looked like it did in the textbook, then um, I, I tend not to believe them. So David, could you tell us about your experience of going to Papua New Guinea with Monster Quest and did you watch the final product? <laughs> I did watch the final product, and I thought that the producer did an excellent job of putting the program together. Um, you can appreciate that uh, trying to make a program, trying to hunt for an animal that, in fact, in my opinion, doesn't exist, um, is very difficult to do. Um, and although they investigated uh, lots and lots of the phenomena that have been reported, um, because I suspect that a lot of people aren't really telling the truth about these phenomena and what they saw, um, then putting a program like that together is going to be very, very difficult. But let me, let me tell you now, it was a wonderful experience going to Papua New Guinea. And I can assure you that I really would have loved it if there was a pterosaur. It would, it would be so fantastic if just one colony of pterosaurs had survived somewhere. Then I'd be able to assess just how wrong we are as paleontologists. The great thing about my job is that the final proof uh, that I'm wrong just doesn't exist. The, the pterosaur is not alive. So um, 
I can say what I like about pterosaurs, and you can look at the fossil evidence to see if the story that I'm telling is at least uh, partly uh, believable. But the final proof, of course, would be if, if there was such a, a pterosaur. And the seal account is known to exist. It would be so, so nice if a pterosaur uh, was, was to exist too. But the ocean is a great place to hide a fossil fish. But the surface of the Earth is our domain, and we have been everywhere, and we haven't found a pterosaur, and we haven't found a fossil pterosaur in rocks younger than Cretaceous age. The pterosaur doesn't exist. So I knew that we were onto a hiding for nothing, but I really was absolutely delighted to be asked to go to Papua New Guinea. It's a place that I've always <laughs> wanted to go to, and so I was more than happy to go and help, and, and I told the producer that I, I, it was my considered opinion that they were not going to find a pterosaur, but he wanted to have a pterosaur expert on, on the program, and I was happy to be that pterosaur expert. If you listen to some of the monster enthusiasts and a lot of the cryptozoologist folks, they, they claim that scientists such as yourself actually don't want to find these creatures because... Will, uh, <laughs> no, I do. Will, I do. Will, no, I no. Do. Well, the, the story is that, that, uh, that if you actually found these, that it would shake your worldview and it, it would undermine your science. Um, Why would it so undermine my science? True. Why would it undermine <laughs> my science? Well, the, 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 the story goes that uh, you are so vested in the scientific uh, point of view that, that even... Not, not you in particular, but scientists in general, <laughs> that, that actually when, when scientists participate in these programs, that they'll do it to help out a bit. But that really, again, I've heard, I've heard some people claim this, that really we don't want to find out what's there. We, we don't want to admit that there's good evidence for Bigfoot. We don't want to admit... Oh, we have, we, we have a saying in England that's uh, too rude to say on air. But, no, go ahead. I think that view is bollocks. Most scientists, most scientists that I know, would be absolutely delighted if they found a trilobite, or a graptolite, or a pterosaur, or a T-Rex. Any of these animals that's extinct, what we know about them from the fossil remains is that they're fascinating, and we actually would love to have, if you like, uh, the proof of how fascinating they are, because we would get the whole biology of these animals. And it would be great to see how just, just how wrong we had been. No, I don't think that uh, discovering a pterosaur or a T-Rex would undermine any of our uh, scientific philosophies. What would undermine them? is the other way round. It's, it's, uh, I, I forget, I think it was Maya who said, what would shake his belief in evolution? And he said, a bunny rabbit in the Ordovician. The other way round is, is much more problematic than if we find uh, animals that have survived. There are countless examples of what we might call living fossils. There are trees that are known by only one genus that were incredibly abundant and diverse in the Mesozoic. There are groups of fishes that were much, much more widespread and important in the Jurassic and in the Cretaceous. Um, in North America, you've got garpike. You've got garpike. We can push the fossil record of garpike, garpike right back into the early part of the Cretaceous. In, in Brazil, there is a, a, a fossil garpike, which looks really quite similar to modern-day garpike. And it's 105, yeah, it's about 105 million years old. Now, that garpike belongs to a group of fishes which are typified by very, very thick enamel-coated scales, and they were the dominant fish group all during the, the Mesozoic, or certainly during the Triassic and the Jurassic, and they declined in importance during the Cretaceous, and the vast majority of them were extinct before the end of the Cretaceous. But the garpike got through. And in the oceans, the coelacanth got through. It would be really cool if a pterosaur got through. Even if a pterosaur did get through, it wouldn't alter a jot our perceptions about evolution or the age of the Earth or any of our scientific philosophies which paleontology has helped develop. I think that actually is an excellent lead-in. We were actually going to ask you about um, that particular idea that somehow finding a living dinosaur would falsify evolution. But it seems like in your trip to PNG, you did have a lot of work with creationists based on the outcome of the episode. Uh, would you like to comment on the Young Earth creationist quest to disprove evolution? I, I, found, I found it very bizarre. I found it very bizarre. The thing is that we have different approaches. Creationists a different philosophy. They believe in something, whereas scientists, if they're being proper scientists, they should 
have a hypothesis and they should try and test that hypothesis. Now, in paleontology, it can be difficult. It can be difficult to test hypotheses, but it isn't impossible. And there are methodologies by which we can test ideas. And I find that the creationists come from a completely different point of view. Uh, and what they have is they have something that is, is written in a holy book and they try to explain everything in terms of that holy book and they take it quite literally. I got into a little bit of a discussion about the, the fact that um, Noah's Ark had dinosaurs on it which I found odd, but the, the, the argument was that the dinosaurs weren't mentioned in the Bible because we didn't invent the word until, uh, well, Owen invented it probably in 1840, but it didn't get published till about 1842. So the word dinosaur didn't actually exist in, the, in, uh, in our vocabulary until 1842, so therefore it couldn't exist in the Bible, and therefore, because the word couldn't exist, there must therefore, by default, have been dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. Spurious logic, I fear. Um, but there you go. But I, I found it just very difficult because we're, we're, we're looking at things from a different point of view. And so we just agreed to differ. And we got on really rather famously. Did you um, notice the part in the video where they had the video um, from 2006 and the physicist said that he thought it must be a ropen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked him up. And his evidence was? <laughs> well, well, right, exactly. His evidence was... His evidence was non-existing. He had a, he had an image of some lights which he couldn't say what they were and what they weren't. Uh, so somebody says, oh, well, we've got these things called ropens there. By default, it must be a ropen. <laughs> I think yeah, not. I think not. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, did, did you see anything or did you hear any of the stories there about this bioluminescent flying animal? Yeah, well, we, we interviewed some guys. And these guys were describing these lights that came out of the side of a mountain. And then they went off in this direction and disappeared. And then in the morning, some lights came back and went back into the mountain. And they said it couldn't be an aeroplane because they knew that aeroplanes didn't fly at night. So there was a little bit of misguided, <laughs> well, uh, misguided there. But the point is, it seemed to correlate quite nicely with one of the flights which led Sydney for Tokyo. And then the corresponding flight in the morning coming back. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> there was, I think there was a few phenomena that had been ignored there. Well, they left that bit out of the episode, too, that, uh, yeah. that anybody's well, saying that airplanes don't fly at night. Um, that's very similar to a UFO phenomena, the uh, the Phoenix Lights, which uh, uh, skeptics, we believe it was flares uh, falling behind a mountain. So it appears they disappear. it's a craft disappearing over a mountain range, but we think it was flares falling behind the mountain range. So it kind of creates the same illusion. Um, yeah, but that's all it is, an illusion. Until you actually get that rope and in a net, um, I think they're best as mysterious lights in the sky. There's loads and loads of mysterious lights in the sky. There's all sorts of ways of generating mysterious lights. But I know of hardly any animal that farts balls of glowing gas uh, out of its anus as it flies along. I, I don't know of any. They, they, they are few and far between. Also. They are rare. They are. There's a few insects which can uh, eject quite hot fluid, the bombardier beetle, for example. Uh, and there's quite a few organisms with bioluminescence, but bright sparks shooting out your ass is just not. It's not. I it's love not it. Common. I love it. It's not common. It, yeah. <laughs> we just need to look harder. That's the problem. We, we're not looking hard enough, are we? No, we must must try right. harder. Well, there is. I think there's a squid or an octopus that ejects uh, bioluminescent fluid instead of ink, um, but I don't think they can fly. So that kind of actually, bioluminescence is much much more common in the marine realm than it is than it is amongst terrestrial animals. In fact, I don't think there's a single vertebrate animal uh, on land that has bioluminescence. There, there, there was a claim for a frog, I believe, uh, but that claim has not been substantiated. But you do find bioluminescence in a whole lot of fishes, especially in the deep ocean. In the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean, bioluminescence is, is used as a, as a lure and for signaling devices. Uh, but otherwise, it, it's phenomenally rare. And it, it, it occurs in some invertebrates. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of glowworms and, and fireflies and things. But um, it's, it's extremely rare outside of the deep marine realm for, for vertebrates. Well, this, and um, I can't imagine there would be a good. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I can't imagine there'd be a good evolutionary reason for for bioluminescence, particularly something in the air. Um, it would be a good reason for would... being extinct, wouldn't it? It would be a great reason to become extinct. Um, it's you a bit think. of a giveaway, isn't it? Gives, gives your <laughs> right. presence away a bit. Yeah. yeah like, oh, there it is. There's that glowing thing. I'm hungry. 
it, right, even if it's uh, the predator, it would be giving it away to the prey. It's very odd, very odd. So. No, I, I think it's make-believe myself. I mean, okay, so some people claim that they've seen some sort of strange animal and they decide that that's going to be a pterosaur and then somebody else decides they've seen some bright lights in the sky and all of a sudden they're adding the two and two together and they say that the bright lights are the pterosaur. Well, I, I think not. Let's, 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 let's have a little bit more substantive uh, data before we start um, telling these big fairy stories. Yeah, we, we get the uh, Thunderbird stories here in the U.S., and um, at least they're daylight sightings, you know. Mm. So. <laughs> you know, we, we do know that in more recent times, there have been some pretty big birds. Uh, Argentavis was a pretty big bird. Uh, so, you know, we do know that there have been... Uh, a, just a few million years ago, some some really rather large birds. So I could I could probably cope more with uh, finding a thunderbird than I could with finding a pterosaur. Although personally, I know what birds look like. I really much much prefer to find a pterosaur than a thunderbird. Sure. <laughs> well, you know, and so many people are not really familiar with seeing uh, like uh, buzzards and condors up close. So when they see one really close, it seems exceptionally large compared to what they would expect. Um, so I know we get a lot of buzzards down here in, um, Georgia and, uh, up close, those are even, or turkey vultures, for example. Yeah, those, they're, in, they're are, impressive animals, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they really are. And, uh, ugly. And when you, if you, <laughs> uh, ugly as hell, but if yeah. you've ever seen an Andean condor, I've, I've stood on the, uh, in the Andes and watched a, an Andean condor and they start off a long, long way in the distance and they just sort of drift towards you. Um, and they just seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually when they're overhead, they're absolutely enormous. And then they drift off again in the other direction. And by the time they're about a, a, two, a couple of kilometers away, uh, they've, they've disappeared. But they do that whole distance, and they don't even flap their wings. It's absolutely magnificent. But they are enormous. But it's so hard to tell scale in the air. That's the... Absolutely, absolutely. You, you've, you've got to have the thing down by your side sitting next to a meter scale bar. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the best way. <laughs> Karen, do you have any more questions? No. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed with knowledge now. <laughs> yeah, this has been very informative. Thank you. Okay. Well, look, you guys, um, in about five minutes I've got to leave because we've got a, a, a boat trip around the harbor with our first-year students. I've got a new crop of first-years at the University of Portsmouth. They're just starting their paleobiology degree pathway. Um, so hopefully I'm training the scientists that in the future are going to go out there, and just one of them may be the person who's going to discover that rope and eh? I hope so. <laughs> okay. Right, nice to chat to you guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Okay, Thanks. I'm glad we finally managed to, to find a slot where we could all meet up and chat. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford and Karen Stolzno, we've been interviewing Dr. Dave Martell about pterosaurs and the legendary Ropen of New Guinea. Music for today's episode was provided by Peach Stealing Monkeys got some interesting news coming up at the end of October, some big changes for our show, and we also have some really good guests lined up to discuss Darwin, werewolves, and genetics. Cool. I got a Google voicemail. Who's this from? Hello, this is Daniel Larkson. We need to talk. 